0: Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd, I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the Production Advice website. And with me as always this week is my co-host, John Tidy from blog.net John, how are you doing?
1: I'm great. Hello, everyone.
0: So this week, uh, I, I know that the title of the episode, if you've seen it, is Bob Ludwig. Uh, before you get really excited, this is uh, only 10 minutes of this show is actually me talking to Bob Ludwig. And if you were listening to the Dynamic Range Day webcast a couple of weeks ago, then you've already heard it, but you can wind through and then John and I are gonna talk about some of the many interesting things that Bob said as part of my interview. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then I should probably rewind and say that this week's guest is Bob Ludwig. It's such a privilege for me to talk to him because when I started out being a mastering engineer over 20 years ago, there were only two mastering engineers that I knew by name Uh, Bob and Bernie Grundman and I would say that's probably because they were the only two guys who ever got a credit because I mean he's basically a mastering superstar you know I mean there Mm -hmm. are not many superstars in the mastering world um but you know Bob I mean he's you know I've been lucky he must uh, Steve Lillywhite, Sylvia Massey, another legendary person who's on this podcast because he's worked on some of the biggest records of all time um And he's a really nice guy, uh, and he's a big supporter of Dynamic Range Day. I mean, he's a big supporter of Dynamics in general. So, uh, and the reason that I interviewed him was because every year on Dynamic Range Day, we give an award to the best sounding Dynamic album of the previous roughly 12 months. Uh, This year, Bob won the award um, for his work on the album The Stage by... Avenged Sevenfold who some of you may know are a metal band. It's a fantastic album and I talk about it in the interview so I think what we'll do here is pause and I will play you the interview that I did with Bob around Dynamic Range Day this year and then John and I will pick up on some of the topics that we discussed. Bob thank you so much for making time in your schedule and joining us and um, I want to say congratulations because I mean you know that uh, the reason we're talking today is that I guess you and the band Avenged Sevenfold have won the Dynamic Range Day Award 2017 um yes for, do,
2: I, do i get a certificate what do i get
0: <laughs> you know i think i might have to do a certificate i wanted when i started out i had an idea that i would have some kind of nice i would crowdsource some funds and you know have some kind of actual trophy uh that uh-huh. hasn't happened yet but i think well see the thing is i don't know whether you realize this but you've actually won twice before
2: uh-huh. um, in 2013
0: <laughs> the award went to blunderbuss uh, by jack white Yes. and in 2014 it went to Random Access Memories by Daft Punk so you have actually won the award uh, three times out of the seven available so I definitely think I need to get you at least a certificate to All recognize right. that achievement. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> um, so I mean it's a fantastically dynamic record especially by modern standards and especially mm. in, in the metal genre where you know still a lot of stuff is very crushed. I mean, how did you get involved with, with it and were you part of the decision for the band to move to a more dynamic sound? Cause I know the last album was more dynamic as well, or did they kind of come to you asking for that?
2: Well, um, I, I was digging through my emails and a couple of years ago, uh, M shadows from the band, he wrote me and, and he said, and I quote, we've always been anti loud. We need to feel the dynamic gloss and the overall hugeness without losing the tones we work so hard for, uh, end of quote. And, um, so they've always had that on their mind. They, they love what they do. You know, as, as you know, they're, uh, you know, they play s- so fast on some of their songs, you know, <laughs> the, all the, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the diction of the, uh, the attacks has to be exactly right, you know, in order for the, the music to happen. And, um, so it's great, you know, but so in, in this case, um, you know, when I first mastered the record, um, uh, Andy Wallace mixed it. He did a brilliant job mixing it. And I mm-hmm. know they were really thrilled. And the drummer especially wanted to try to maintain all the fancy subtleties that he's done in in this record. And um, so the, the previous record I did, which was the Hail to the King record, um, especially considered to records like Death Magnetic, was considered quite dynamic by many. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> You know, it's funny. Uh, a, a lot of bands think that if their uh, if their record isn't as loud as Death Magnetic, then it's dynamic. You know, which, which of course, it's not. You know, but uh, yeah, right. nevertheless, Hail to the King was uh, was not as crushed as many records. And so, when I first mastered uh, the new record, I did it exactly in that same style as Hail to the King. And they were really happy with it, but then the drummer was like, "Well, you know, I'm really kind of losing some stuff," and and I appreciated that. You know, I think that's great, and because I'm always for uh, you know it's the the proper amount of dynamics. You know, hmm. so then after that, I mastered a record that, like in the good old days, used compression only as an artistic tool to help glue some of the aspects of the sound together, uh, but still retained all the transients. You know, it was very minimal amount of mastering uh, compression. Uh, really just just brought it to the sweet spot as far as I was concerned. And they were just, just ecstatic with the result. And then a few days later, and I, and I almost timed it to the hour, they came back to me nervous that it wouldn't be as impressively loud as their peers' recordings. So I mastered a version that was kind of a split difference, and they were still on the fence. And then I sent them that uh, Loudness War YouTube video that Matt Mayfield so wonderfully made years ago mm. that in two minutes sums up the loudness war in a way that anybody can understand, and as soon as they saw that, um, they came back to me and 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 went with my um, most dynamic version, and that's what was released, and including the singles. Um, I mean, even the radio single was not needlessly hyper radio. Uh, um, you know, most A&R people still think that that needs to be done for some reason. And really, it's the opposite of that in, in reality. But uh, anyway, uh, so I was thrilled to to participate in a project that proves once again that you don't need loudness to sell. You just need great music.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, it's been really well received. You know, I was looking almost all the reviews have been hugely positive. Um, it's, you know, it's got a fantastic rating on Amazon, you know. Four out of four and a half stars out of five. So yeah, it's a real testament to, to the kind of things that we're saying. But you mentioned that you, I mean, I know that you're quite, it's quite common for you to give the artist multiple versions to choose between. And I'm just curious how that works practically. Do you master, say, one or two songs first and send them off as examples and then they, they choose and then you use that as a benchmark? Or do you actually do a completely different master of, of an entire album?
2: No, usually, um, you know, it it does depend on timing, of course. But if if, uh, you know, the band's got some time before their their crunch date, you know, their due date is, um, you know, if uh, they'll send me something for me to evaluate a mix. That's how it normally starts. And in the midst of that evaluation, I usually that's where I usually send them one or two or three examples from uh, which to choose kind of to set the bearing so that when I'm doing the actual mastering that we're suddenly on the wrong page you know mm. uh, uh, so that's important and so and and of course it's at that stage that most of the bands choose the loudest one <laughs> <laughs> however not all of them do these days which is great you know and I do explain to them that with uh, streaming and with the radio uh, services like you know Pandora and stuff where the streaming services are trying to get everything to sound equally loud that they have loudness normalization and how important that is to uh to honor that fact now and uh not make your record sound like loud wimpy music you know
0: yeah exactly and do do you find that people find that uh that argument persuasive or not
2: usually they ignore me (laughs)
0: <laughs> See that's uh, I mean that's the wrong thing to do If you're asking Bob Ludwig to master your albums I think but I mean Okay so I have this strategy I will send people Two versions you know a really loud one And a, um, a more conservative one And then I actually ask them to Import it into iTunes and enable yeah. sound check and listen like that because I find that Sometimes actions speak louder than words But I guess the problem is you're dealing with people who Have no time and You know have so many other things on their plate That that's just not always possible right
2: yeah, I do th- do that exact thing as well, usually with a exceedingly long explanation as to why they should be doing that. And and uh, very seldom do they sometimes they come back and say, oh, that was really interesting. But we still want it loud. You know, but but a lot of sometimes they do say, uh, you know, you know, thank you for that. It was very enlightening. And now we understand. And from now on, we're going to do that. Uh, it does depend on the client, I guess. Uh, Quite a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, if if they say if they say they still want the louder version, do do you find that really frustrating, or is it actually as satisfying to to master an album really loudly as it is, you know, once you know what the client wants, does that does well, that bother you?
2: I think it has to do with the listening copies. Like a lot of these engineers pre-master their mixes and just destroy them. Sometimes, you know, they just make they'll, they'll be distorted. I mean, it's like it's like, hello, are you a famous engineer or not? You know? Um, but nevertheless, that's what the client gets used to. And then once, uh, they're used to that, it's very difficult to send them something that's not as loud. But if they're, if that's not the case and they want something really loud, you know, it can be satisfying to, to make something that's very, very loud and jumps out at you when you put it on. And, and, and hopefully to my ears still have some semblance of dynamics left. And, um, you know, so that that can be satisfying. But the thing that's not satisfying is when they have sent me something that's already been pre-mastered by the mixer and it's louder than I would have dreamt of making it. And there's just no room. And it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I have to come back and just be this real party spoiler saying, like, well, there's really not much I can do with what you've sent me. I mean, it's it's way beyond what I would have done. And, you know, some, there are times that I want to just bow out of the project you know
0: yeah i know that, that's something that i've seen as well i mean do you is that like a significant proportion of the stuff that you get where you have that problem
2: well it's more and more i mean i thought that we were li- winning a bit with the loudness war when loudness normalization came in but then uh this phenomenon of the mixers themselves making client re- listening references that never used to be happening before and now it's more than not that they do it and, You know, we beg for those listening references because the worst thing is to do something and like you put a fair amount of compression on it and they come back and say, well, this isn't even close to what we've been listening to. And I says, well, how come you didn't send me what you've been listening to? And then I have to go and redo the project again, you know. So that's the worst part of all, you know. Yeah.
0: No, that's, that's a nightmare so on a slightly different tack well yeah. I'm interested to know um, is it true to correct me if I'm wrong but I've I've heard that actually you kind of made a name for yourself back in the early days because you were able to cut super loud vinyl is that right?
2: Yeah well that's one thing that's a technique of jamming grooves together in a way and sometimes cheating a little bit early on in my career um, to make a record you know it could really make that Neumann lathe speak <laughs> And so it wasn't a matter so much of the the artistic part of the mastering being super loud. It's a matter of being able to take, um, you know, liberties with a lathe and try to make a record that still won't skip, um, right. you know, to go right to that borderline, like living on the edge. I guess I've been living on the edge for my whole career. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, that's interesting. But I guess the thing is with, with vinyl, th- there's kind of a point where, you know, if you go too hot, you're just going to burn out the lathe. So... Even yeah. when you take vinyl as loud as it can be, it's probably not too far. Whereas the digital mm-hmm. tools just let us go, or people go way beyond.
2: Absolutely, yeah. There's really no comparison, yeah.
0: No. So I sometimes give people advice to master it as though it was going to go to vinyl, um, which I guess you would think is probably still good advice, even yes. these days, right? Because I know that like the the vinyl masters for the Avenged Sevenfold album were cut from the same files that we used for the for all yes. the other versions, yeah.
2: Yes, no need to do anything differently for that, Yep.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, listen, I mean, you've made some of the loudest and some of the most dynamic masters of recent years, and they've all sold well, which, you know, as we've said, proves that uh, listeners don't care about loudness. So combined with the online loudness management and hopefully the, the extra communication that's happening, I don't know whether you saw that the James Blake album that won the award last year, it was specifically a conversation between the mastering engineer and the the record label and the artist. And it was very much a choice, just like with Avenged Sevenfold. Hopefully we're going to see more and more examples uh, like that in future. So I just want to say congratulations again on having mastered three outstanding albums with great dynamics and thanks for your support. um, And thanks again for talking to us.
2: Okay, Ian, thank you so much.
0: No, Bob, thank you. And have a great day.
2: Thank you. Cheers.
0: Bye. So there you go. Uh, short but sweet. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, It was such a pleasure for me to talk to Bob and so privileged that he was able to speak to us. On that day, he had four mastering projects to complete um, as well as doing my interview. And I think he had another commitment as well. So I'm assuming those were singles that he was mastering, not albums. Um, But, you know, even after all these years, he's still incredibly busy and rightly so. So, It's a shame I didn't have longer to talk to Bob, but the nice thing about having this podcast is that John and I can just take a little bit of time to talk over some of the things that he said. And the thing that kind of leapt out at me from that interview was just initially the the concept. I mean, he said there that people ignore his advice um, about the loudness of their albums, which, you know, is something that kind of staggers me because if you go to one of the biggest names in the world, probably the biggest name in the mastering world for me. I would have thought that you would listen to his advice about what's going to be best for the music. But I guess, you know, maybe some of the the people he's talking to don't have the same degree of respect, maybe. Um, (laughs) You know, and and I guess it's a slightly depressing idea that that people still are going for these super loud records. Um, I have a lot of respect for Bob because, you know, he... He he has so, so much kind of support for the idea of, you know, not making music dynamic beyond belief, but finding the right balance, which is, you know, something that I'm talking about all the time, uh, uh, of loudness and dynamics. But he also, you know, I mean, I think I've said before, if if somebody wants me to make something louder than I think uh, the music can take, then I just kind of politely say, listen, I, I really think you do better getting this done somewhere else. I mean, he's in a different position because he, you know, his clients are entire record labels. I guess he's he he can't just choose to uh, cherry pick. The, maybe he could cherry pick the projects he wants to work on. But anyway, he he offers these multiple versions to the clients, lets them choose between them, and he will send them his preferred version. He'll send them a louder version, um, and possibly an even louder version or a more dynamic version, and kind of explicitly says, you know are you happy with this? So so, so the band basically gets the final call on how dynamic the release is. Mm. So for example, the Beck albums are really loud, but that's exactly, I think, as Beck wanted it. So yeah, I have a lot of respect for the fact that Bob, you know, has his personal opinions, um, but still does the best for his clients, even when his clients disagree with those opinions.
1: Well, the client's always right. It's their record. They have to live with it at the end of the day. It's just, you know, as mastering engineer, it's just our name in the liner notes. If we even get that.
0: See, I I agree with that, and I kind of don't. Uh, I think, I don't know whether we mentioned this in one of the Q&As, but, it, but the core mastering maxim of the entire profession, if you like, has to be do no harm, right? Yeah. At the very least, if you're as a mastering engineer, if you're given something, it should come out better at the other end. And of course, better is subjective. So in that sense, the client is always right. But for me, I, I mean, to be fair, I don't think I've heard any of Bob's work that has crossed that line. I mean, he said in the interview that he enjoys the challenge of getting something super loud and still at least feeling like it has dynamics, even if on a technical level, it doesn't really. Um, do you so, think part
1: of the reason he does multiple versions is so that they don't need to do recalls as often? It's easier for him to print three versions and then it's done? And then let them choose?
0: Well, what I, think? From, what, f- from what he was saying, I think it's he does it like I do, more at the beginning of the process. So when I do a mastering project, it, if it's a remote mastering project, then the first thing I do is do a song or possibly two songs and send it off and get some feedback. Oh, okay which and that's very much I mean yeah that's absolutely a damage limitation exercise right because that saves you from mastering the entire album and then having to make extensive changes if you if you kind of iron out people's preferences and opinions on a small number of songs to begin with then you can carry on from there and my guess is that he I mean one of the things I know about him uh is that for example when he's if, if you give him a master on analog tape to transfer, he has a choice of machines and he has a choice of head blocks for those machines in order to do the transfer. So even before you ever get to the stage of doing any sound work, he's optimizing the transfer by choosing the best possible combination of gear to play the thing back on. Um, so when you think that that degree of, of attention is going into the project, I mean, I've never had that luxury. I've you know I've worked in studios where I had a choice of one or two tape machines and, um, and you know you, the appropriate noise reduction, and you know you you calibrate them and all the rest of it. But I've never had a the pleasure of of a, you know a room full of tape machines. But yeah, if if that level of attention of detail is being paid during the mastering process, then yeah, stage one is you're going to get sent sent a bunch of flat transfers, or maybe go into the session to listen to a bunch of flat transfers and choose those right, followed by whatever else is going to come. So yeah, I don't think he from what he said in the interview he doesn't master an entire project it's a few songs and those decisions got made but yeah if he knows from the outset okay this has to be super loud you know he can work with that goal in mind because i think it's it's almost in, you you have to know that when you're going in to in maybe you could squeeze an extra db or two from something if you if the client comes back and says yeah i wanted it louder and you you feel that that's possible you would maybe squeeze a little bit extra room against a limiter or whatever but if, if you go too far down that route the, the whole thing is just going to fall to pieces i think so
1: yeah that makes sense do you ever send multiple versions to your clients um like i like I, I could see doing multiple kind of loudness ranges and letting them decide in some ways that could make the process quicker because you don't have to do recalls uh to make it one db louder or whatever um but even if you do like your normal version and say, this is what I I think it sounds best. And you send them a louder version that's only like slightly louder. Then maybe they're not going, if they go with that one, it's still not that bad. It's not going to be totally crushed. And kind of trick in a way, you're kind of tricking them into going, this is as loud as it'll go. And it's 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 still within the reasonable range.
0: I have done that. <laughs> Um, I don't don't do it to... I mean, generally, I like to send one version, um, and if I think there's some kind of particular way in which they might be interested in a different version of it, I will tend to describe it. So I I like to kind of say, this is my preferred version, but especially if I'm moving it a long way from their mix, for example, you know, let's say Uh the mix was really bass light, so I put in a load of bass, and they're going to be... there's any risk that they might be surprised or taken aback by what they hear um then i will say that and so that so that they at least feel like they have that option but i'm kind of always hoping that they're going to go with my with my judgment and that's i mean that comes back to what i was saying before where it's like i i do agree that the client is always right and it's absolutely true that they are the ones who you know we listen to the the project when we work on it and then maybe one in i don't know one in 10 one in 20 times you have an album that you is your taste in music and you love so much that you're going to listen to it for your own pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, One of whereas- those projects
1: where you're working on it and you forget to do the, to the, to do the mastering because you're enjoying it so much.
0: Oh, I never forget to do the mastering. but well, I, do- I mean,
1: like you, you play it and you're like, you forget to, to tweak, st- or you have to remember to tweak stuff in a way because it's just, you know, it's just sounding good. That's t- more towards the end of the project where it's like, it's already sounding, it's all, all sounding good. And you find yourself 10 minutes in and you haven't touched anything in a while
0: what i get is is the ones where i'm i i'm i don't know maybe checking the gaps and i'm enjoying Mm -hmm. it so much i just let it run and it's like oh i need to stop this and go to the next one because i have another project to do this afternoon or you know whatever i need to go to bed whatever it is but you just keep tempted to get back in to keep listening um that that happens sometimes because the whole mastering thing for me is such an itch that i have to scratch i almost never Do you know what I mean? As soon as I listen to something and it's not quite right, especially if I like it, I'm kind of like, oh, I've got to fix that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, definitely at the end of the process, there's uh, just that kind of, it's irresistible to keep listening thing happens. You know, the artist is always going to be listening to their, well, I don't know, some artists get completely sick of an album by the time it's mastered and they never want to hear it again. But if anybody's going to listen to it, if anybody's guaranteed to listen to it, again, it's going to be the artist. So they have to be happy with it. On the other hand, the whole point of coming to a mastering engineer is to get that opinion and to get that feedback. I guess it's okay. You know, if if you have a dialogue with the client and you explain, this is why I think it should be this way, and they take your opinion seriously and they listen to it and then they go, yeah, but I still want it this way, then that's fine. You know, because at that point they have... They've asked for your opinion, you've given your opinion, and they've chosen to do something slightly differently. And that's that's fine. It would make no sense to me if somebody kind of just went and told a mastering engineer to do something without any kind of dialogue. I guess with 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 an old client where you've got an established routine, that might make sense. But um, anyway, yeah, I still think if you're getting Bob Ludwig to do your mastering, then you should be listening to what he says. But (laughs) clearly I'm biased.
1: Yeah. I think I'm either lucky or unlucky in that I I don't get a lot of revision notes for the masters that I do. Lucky because it's over quickly and unlucky because they don't push me to do better.
0: I'm I'm quite happy either way, to be honest. Occasionally you get a job where where maybe there are options, right? Or there were compromises Hmm. and you send it away and you're kind of thinking, oh, this is good because they'll tell me whether I got it right or not. And on, the, on those occasions when the client goes, yep, it's absolutely fine. There's always this little doubt in the back of your mind that maybe they're not hearing it quite clearly enough and and you didn't get that last bit of feedback that you were kind of hoping for. But on the other hand, you don't want to kind of ask a leading question and put doubt in their mind because if they're happy, they're happy and you you did your best work to get there. So that's good. But it's also good sometimes to get feedback because – unless it kind of disagrees with you. See, I'm lucky though that I'm like you, I don't get that much. Usually any requests for alterations I get are quite minor. You know, it's it's kind of, oh, this one's a bit loud or maybe that one's a bit bassy, that that kind of stuff, rather than somebody... I mean, again, I guess because of doing doing the, those one or two songs at the beginning to, to to make sure that everybody's happy, you can have all of the in-depth conversations about those and then it usually goes fairly smoothly after that.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes... You also want like validation of, of all the special work that you put into a particular song, or if you like go in with RX and you're removing all the mouth clicks from the vocals because it's an intimate song, uh, all those kind of things you want to be noticed, and if they don't notice it, you're a little disappointed. So right, my my am.
0: strategy for that is I tell I tell people I say this is. It. <laughs> You know, I, I, it's not like I'm beating him over the head with it, but I always, if I've gone over and above, I always gently tell people what I've done just to make sure they know. <laughs> just because I want them to know that they're getting value for money, you know, because it's, but yeah, they're, they're, oh you know, we we all have egos. That's, that's natural. Yeah. The second thing that I thought was fascinating that Bob said in the interview, which is kind of related, is that, you know, this was a case where, I mean, the, the final album is amazingly dynamic, especially by modern standards and especially in the metal genre. Um, although I say that metal fans really care about sound quality, which is interesting, given that it can be a really aggressive, distorted genre. But anyway,
1: there are cer- certain sub where it's not allowed to sound good. I, I've got a black metal album credit. I don't even remember hearing the album at this point. So I don't know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I've had that a couple of times. I've had bands specifically make the point to me and say, this is not supposed to sound good and we don't want you to make it sound good. It should sound... But anyway, (laughs) lots of metal guys really care passionately about the the, the sound of um, the albums. But so even in this case where the band knew going in that they wanted it to sound dynamic, they had already done an album with Bob, which had been pretty dynamic already. And then this one, they thought, they would like it even more in that direction. They then had doubts. I mean, Bob says, you know, he he like a week later to the day or whatever, he was kind of counting it down. They came back and they're like, oh, maybe. And that I just thought was really telling because, you know, that's what I see all the time. And I mean, something I actually wrote uh, a blog post about, and the theme of that was to fight the FUD, <laughs> the loudness FUD, where FUD is... F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, and the kind of the theme of the post was to sort of hammer home this idea that, you know, there are, I, I had picked sort of seven stages in the process between somebody thinking of the idea of a song and it actually making it onto a format that people could listen to and saying that if any one of those stages in the process, you know, mixing engineer, mastering engineer, a rep, band member, whoever, kind of gets infected by the FUD, they can put... That, that fear, uncertainty and doubt into everybody else's minds and sudden, you know, you have to have the confidence all the way through that process that you want a dynamic sounding album and that that's going to be the best for the project in order to actually get it released that way. You know, if anybody, be it the label manager or, I don't know, a roadie, could be anybody, kind of comes in and goes, well, it's not very loud. Is that going to, are people going to like that? Suddenly everybody's like, oh, well, let's make it loud just in case. Um, which, and it's, I'm quite, proud of that blog post we'll put a link in the in the show notes on masteringshow.com if anybody wants to take a look but an interesting thing happened this this year for dynamic range day which was I got some kickback to that post where people were kind of I think people thought that I was calling them cowardly for making stuff loud and that pissed people off which I can understand because their clients are demanding loud masters loud mixes and they've developed the skills needed to do the best job they can to give their clients what they want. And like we just said, the client is always right. So, and I was a bit horrified by that because I, it was never my intention to kind of, you know, um, upset anybody or, I mean, I wanted the, the post to be controversial. I wanted it to to get people to be thought provoking, to make people think. Um so, maybe I kind of emphasized the fear aspect of that. I guess I should have been emphasizing the ud <laughs> um, it's 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 uncertainty and but but this is a perfect example of it, where you know, even a band having worked with Bob before and had success, you know, was still had that final stage where they're like, "Oh no, what if it's too dynamic?" And as you heard in the interview, he said that he sent them the the Matt Mayfield video um about the loudness war, and that persuaded me. but. I just think that shows how widespread it is. I mean, do you, when you're working on stuff, do you feel now confident in, I asked you in the last show whether you agreed with me about this dynamic stuff and you you basically said yes. Do, Do you feel confident in that now or are you still kind of edging the levels up to make sure that people don't complain that it's too quiet or kind of feel yourself kind of shying away from it, making it more dynamic because of that concern? No, I don't.
1: I don't bump up the levels unnecessarily. Usually, my first instincts with the loudness ends up being right around what you recommend. Actually, within one dB, usually maybe a one dB louder than what you recommend, Mm -hmm. and I don't feel like it needs to go any louder than that. So,
0: yeah, I guess not.
1: And and I'm confident with it.
0: Good. That's really good to hear. And and how? often do you get clients coming back and asking for it to go louder?
1: I would say very rarely. I, I can't remember any, I can't remember any times, but I don't remember a lot. So <laughs> 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 it couldn't have been in the last couple of years where people have asked for it louder than that.
0: I mean, that's really good. And that, that reminds me of one of my little pet theories. I have no way of proving this, but I have this idea that um, lots of, especially mastering, enge- I mean, I know mixing engineers are, uh, they're kind of preempting, they're afraid of being criticized because the stuff is not loud. And I feel they're making it louder than it needs to be because of that concern. And you know, the problem with that is that if the first thing that the client hears is already a really loud version, it's really hard to back away from that because they get used to it.
1: Like if a rough mix is really crushed, that can be hard in mixing.
0: Yeah, right. If you're giving it as a reference. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's that's more where I ran into problems where my my mixes don't go through a limiter uh, or maybe I, I don't mix through a master bus compressor and things like that. And their rough mix has been is is just like hitting the the master fader at plus two or something like that Mm -hmm. and you know so you're kind of dealing with distortion and things like that that makes their mix loud and somehow they're used to it or they like that better so
0: yeah that can be a problem i've had that and that's exactly what bob talked about in the interview of course you know he was he was saying exactly that that this is for him that's that's a kind of fairly new thing. I've been seeing that for several years now where and I mean, he's saying even some quite big name engineers are now sending him stuff that, in his opinion, is already too loud um and it, you know it's it's interesting because that's I think it was Sylvia in the interview I did with her mentioned the fact that she she wants to give the mastering engineer as little as possible to do, which is always the advice that I give to people is is you know uh. Well, somebody, uh, I'm going to forget who, who said this, somebody recently on, online said, you know, um, record as though you're mixing and mix as though you're mastering in the sense that at each stage you want there to be the minimum amount of work to be done at the next stage, mm-hmm. um, which I agree with, except if that means people are crushing the life out of a mix before a mastering engineer has ever heard it, that can be a problem and you know that's another case where I feel like actually the client isn't right in that case it's not serving the music best because I think I said in some other show that you know that fairly regularly I get something sent something that's just too loud and I ask them to send me um, a less heavily processed version to work from and I'm able to get something that even if it ends up being as loud as the thing they sent in the first place still sounds better. and I kind of have like a, hundred a percent success rate with that technique.
1: Earlier this week, I had someone asking me about using a loudness meter while mixing. And I basically said, don't like, don't worry about it. Just, just mix it till it sounds good. Um, and worry about the loudness level and everything in mastering. But after doing some research, um, and actually checking my own mixes pre-mastering Minus 16 on a VU meter is probably a good way to go. Uh, and I think you're looking for about between minus 16 and minus 18 LUFS as a good kind of rough loudness for an unmastered mix. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I, I basically agree with that. Um, I mean, I so the, my favorite um, plug-in emulation of a VU meter... Is the VUMT, which I think we've mentioned before on the show. And that yeah. actually comes calibrated at minus 18 um, out of <laughs> out of the box. <laughs> out of the virtual <laughs> box or in the virtual box or whatever that means. Um, and yeah, I think if you have the if you have the VU meter kind of averaging around zero for that, it might peak a couple of DBs higher for the louder sections, which is kind of getting closer to the minus 16 you're talking about. And if you have a mix where the the EQ is balanced, Um, meaning there's there's not like a ton more bass or mid-range or whatever than anything else, um, then the VU or the RMS reading and the LUFS reading are going to be similar. So yeah, that minus 18 thing, I think that's that's a good place to be. I I mean, the thing is, there's no harm in going... Well, maybe there is harm in going quieter. Depends which LUFS you're reading because one of the slightly confusing things about LUFS is you have momentary, short-term and integrated, right? So... I'm always watching the short term, which is the one that kind of, uh, it's not leaping up and down really, really fast. It's it's an averaged thing over about three seconds or so. And I find that's a pretty good correlation with, with RMS or a VU meter. The integrated value, which is the kind of the overall value since you reset the meter, so often over a whole song or whatever, will usually read a couple of dBs lower than that, right? Because there's not many songs where it's like full loudness all the time. So if you had something that was at minus 18 all the way through, the integrated value would also be minus 18. But most songs, let's say they're peaking at minus 16 and they drop down to minus 20 or minus 22 for some of the quiet sections, you're probably going to get an overall reading of something like minus 20. So yeah, if you're looking at the integrated value on an LUFS meter, then minus 20 is probably... whereas if you're looking at the short-term values, then if they're kind of sitting around minus 18, pushing up to minus 16, that's probably a good place to be. And I was going to say that there's no harm in going any quieter, but then you've got to consider the whole concept of of loudness potential. You know, this this idea that if you leave too much heavy lifting to be done at the mastering stage, you can run into problems. You need to have the right amount of dynamic control throughout the process. So I think it probably is a good idea to, for people to be thinking about that kind of minus 20, minus 18 area, just because if 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 they're down at that kind of level and they're still at risk of, of clipping or hitting zero with the peak meter, they probably need more dynamic control in the mix because they probably it, haven't got enough going on anyway. So
1: And, and also they're probably monitoring too quietly.
0: Well, that's, yeah, that's the other thing is I do adjust my monitoring level a lot when I'm mixing, depending on the song. Um, so I think it's harder when you're mixing, to be honest, to to talk about kind of ballparks because it, it depends so much on the material. Um, yeah. And anybody who wants to kind of really dive into this topic should just head back and listen to the show before this one, where we were talking about loudness and what loudness is and, and how to achieve it. Seems like people really like that show. Yeah, I think it's a popular topic. I think you put loudness in the title. Maybe we should just put loudness in the title of all the episodes. So. <laughs> <laughs> It'll, we'll get more hits on YouTube that way. It's, no, I mean, the thing is, it's it's one of the major problems, right? Um, and it feeds into it because everything is interrelated. You know, like lots of people, their problem with loudness is that they haven't got a balanced EQ. You know, if you've got too much bass hitting your your final limiter, you've got much more chance of getting distortion on it. Um, if you've got lots of mid-range and not enough bass in the overall mix, then the loudness meter is going to be reading really loud, but it's not going to sound that loud to you because it hasn't got enough of those lower frequencies in it. Like we said last week, everybody wants to sound loud, even if they're not that bothered about the actual level measurements. Everybody wants it to sound impressive and exciting and, uh, you know, all the rest of it, even if you're a fan of dynamics. So I think, you know, it's it's one of those topics that's that's going to run and run, and we will probably have to talk about it again. Um, if I haven't collapsed from loudness fatigue by that point. <laughs> um, and a little aside, I love the thing that Bob said in the interview. Um, I'd heard that he had a reputation early on um, for being able to get super loud cuts onto vinyl, which is kind of ironic given that he's an advocate of dynamics these days. Um, but yeah, he was saying that that was more to do, that was more a technique of packing the grooves on with the lathe because when you cut louder, you need a wider groove, which reduces the playing time on vinyl. So you're always trading off the running time versus how loud you can cut it. Um, So yeah, I was kind of quite happy to hear that that wasn't some kind of insane processing technique that he had back in the day. I thought the the, the last thing I wanted to kind of reflect on from my chat with Bob was just the three times that he said I was absolutely right. (laughs) Um, because it's always nice to have one of the biggest name mastering engineers in the world confirm what you've been saying Um, and I'm not going to go about it for ages but I'm you know I'd be curious to know whether you've got any reactions to these I mean you know the first one was as I've been saying for ages you don't need to kind of over process stuff to sound good on the radio there's a blog post that I've done which actually has some audio examples um, which we can link to in the show notes again uh, that's themasteringshow.com folks um, and make sure you subscribe to the email list as well while you're there, um, because everything that goes on FM radio goes through broadcast processing, um, so there's no need to make stuff super loud going into that process because it's gonna have everything uh, processed to sound closer to other things anyway, um, and even if you're you know uh, even if you're using I say a modern digital radio station that's using loudness management just like YouTube and Pandora and everywhere else. Again, making stuff super loud is actually counterproductive in that case because it will get turned down again. Um, so yeah, it was great to hear kind of Bob confirm that, although I've obviously known that's the case and he's he's said that before. It was also great to hear that he also uses the iTunes test um, example that I think I mentioned in a recent show where if you have a client who is concerned about loudness or is pushing you to make something louder than you want it, then you could give multiple versions um, get them to put them into iTunes, turn on sound check, and then compare them, and they will hear them loudness matched. And nine times out of 10, the dynamic one is going to sound more impressive in that situation. And then the final thing that he confirmed, which kind of has some r- relates directly to the Avenge Sevenfold album, was this idea that if you make a master that is designed to sound great on vinyl, it will also make a great CD master. Um, and that's been my experience over the years. You know, we, we did an episode a while ago on vinyl mastering and over my career, I've had, I've heard many times that masters that I have done that were for CD have then been cut flat to vinyl with only kind of minor tweaks. And Bob, well, for, for this album and for the Daft Punk album, and I'm guessing for, um, the Jack White album as well, the digital masters... Were used for the vinyl cut in all of those cases um, and the Daft Punk one is an interesting one because lots of people uh, I've heard talking about the vinyl releases saying that they think it sounds so much better than the CD release and they often say that it sounds more dynamic um, which I find kind of fascinating because since it came from the same digital file that was used for the CD the one thing it can't be is more dynamic you can't restore dynamics once they've been managed. I mean, it's a a great dynamic sounding album anyway, but uh, if they're hearing a difference on the vinyl that they interpret as it sounding more dynamic, that's either some kind of quality of the vinyl format itself, or I think more likely that there's just a a somewhat different EQ uh, response on the vinyl, either because of their playback system or possibly because of the way that it was cut. And uh, that's something that I did a YouTube video on a while ago, comparing those two and showing how once you've matched the EQ of the vinyl with the CD, they sound much closer in terms of dynamics, and I think probably pretty much identical. Have you ever fallen into that where you've either kind of thought that something was sounding great and dynamic and then changed the EQ and it sounds different or or vice versa? More
1: often I do the loudness matched check. And I find that even though I've spent two hours mastering one song, it's not that different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, You know, like lots of little changes or even changes that you thought were pretty big. And when you listen loudness matched to what you put into the mastering Jane, it's, 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 you know, it maybe not as important as you thought it was. Yeah, I've certainly um, been that, there. that doesn't it, that
0: doesn't exactly answer your question, but but it's kind of no, similar. Definitely something I can relate to. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, interesting aside. Same thing happens. Uh, I saw a video recently where people were comparing uh, lots of different online mastering services. Um, and if anybody yeah. wants to know what I think about those, then they should head and listen to the episode called "Not Mastering." Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it
1: might be in the title.
0: <laughs> it might be in the title. You never know. Um, I think that we talked about more than that but anyway um you know I mean it was it was a good video the guy was kind of presented this as as well as he could and to be fair he talked about the differences in loudness between the different versions but he didn't loudness match the outputs of these four or five different um robotic mastering systems that he was testing so I did um and when you loudness match them the differences the differences are still there don't get me wrong there are but you know it's it seems like chalk and cheese when you start out and once the loudness has been taken out of the equation it's kind of you know neither one way nor the other it's it's for me i'm kind of like well i could live with any of those
1: yeah that makes sense and and just with like with anything in mastering or really audio production you kind of have to do the loudness match comparisons to actually hear what things are doing
0: and actually, the interesting thing is that I left a comment on the guy's YouTube channel saying, you know, nice demonstration, but it's a shame that you didn't loudness match these examples because, you know, that the final example you're giving is, is like 2 dBs louder than the first one. And that difference is going to outweigh any of the other changes. And he replied and said, um, no, no, I that was intentional because the loudness that these services um determine is is part of the sound of what they're offering and on the face of it that sounds like a kind that of sensible valid. yeah you kind of think oh well, okay fair enough but um it's not valid
1: and the but I, I think the people that want to send to these services just want their mixes louder and without having a conversation i guess
0: <laughs> yeah they do without having a conversation but what i think the, the reason i say that it's not valid is that that the loudness gets taken out of the equation as soon because most of them are uploading well I guess some of them are uploading to SoundCloud and that's one of the places where there isn't any loudness management yet so maybe you know for that use it is important but everywhere else the loudness is going to get measured and compensated for which means that nobody's going to hear those loudness differences and I think the example I gave on um, the webcast on dynamic range day was just to say you know if you want to compare um, apples (laughs) you know you, you you've got a couple of apples here the only way you can do them a fair comparison of are they a similar size what how how do the colors vary does one of them have any more blemishes than the other um, does one smell better or the other they need you need to have both of these apples in your hands right sitting on the desk in front of you if you put one over there on a desk on the other side of the room you can't do a fair comparison anymore you can't see it as well you can't judge anything really about it until you've got them in the same place. And the same thing is true of audio. And the the distinction that I came up with is that changing the loudness of a sound is a reversible change, right? If you just turn something down by two dBs and then turn it up by two dBs again, it will sound exactly the same as it did before you turned it down. And the same thing is true if you turn it up as well, provided you've got enough headroom. But as soon as you run out of headroom and have to use dynamic processing, to achieve that increase in level, or if you cause clipping by lifting it too far, then you have an irreversible change. And those kind of changes stay baked into the sound, if you like, even when you turn it back down. So for example, if you turned an apple into apple puree, <laughs> you could say that it's, it's still an apple, everything's still there, you know, you, if you eat it, you'll still get all the same nutritional content from it, um, it looks different, and it'll have a different texture if you eat it, but it, it's still the same apple. But that's an irreversible change. You can't turn puree back into an apple, whereas you can move an apple as far away from yourself as you like and bring it back again, and it's you've got a reversible change. So my argument is, when you're comparing two songs, trying to compare them when there's an, a reversible change has been made to one of them makes no sense, because you're not comparing apples with apples. Ha! You see what I did there? It's not that funny, is it? No. (laughs) Oh, well. It was fun while it lasted. I do like the apple puree idea, though.
1: Well,
0: that's good because, yeah, somebody said they didn't like that bit of the analogy so much. and I guess maybe I should enter in some kind of contest with myself to see if I can um, outdo the, what was it? The the giant hedge strimmer for the trees in one of the Uh earlier episodes that I did. See, people like that. We'll see what people think of the apple puree and and then we'll take it from there. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, John, thank you so much for putting up with my ramblings, as always, and for your contributions. My pleasure. Uh, You guys listening, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Bob. I hope you enjoyed my ramblings about the interview with Bob. Um, Please head over to ReaperBlog.net to see what John is up to. Uh, He has a ton of great videos, more being released every week. Head over to productionadvice.co.uk if you want to see more stuff from me on a whole range of topics go to themasteringshow.com if you want to find the show notes and sign up for the email hot list so that you're notified as soon as new episodes go online thanks as ever to Kaylee Law for providing the music and thanks for listening